The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 15th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm your host for the day, Leon Nafok, filling in for Mike Pesca. You might be able to hear the remnants of illness in my voice right now. I spent the whole weekend and all of Monday in my bedroom, coughing and sneezing and complaining and petting my dog in an escapist fashion. Mostly, I don't drown on my computer and watch TV, keeping hazy taps on the situation in Charlottesville as it went from a dispiriting right-wing protest to a melee to a fatal tragedy to a national crisis in which the president couldn't bring himself to blame his supporters for what had happened. The whole time, I felt really far and disconnected from everything that was happening. Not just because I was too sick to help my colleagues at Slate with coverage, not just because I had deleted my Twitter account a few weeks earlier in a bid to regain some control over my own brain, not just because I was in bed in my Brooklyn apartment, more focused on drinking water and trying to maintain a normal body temperature than I was on reading the news. I felt far and disconnected in the same way I always do, whenever history seems to be happening in the present tense. I don't think it's because I fail to recognize the gravity of events as they occur, though I do remember sitting in class on 9-11 and watching the first tower fall and turning to a classmate and saying, do you think a lot of people got hurt? It's something else, some reluctance to participate to accept the responsibility that comes with witnessing unacceptable things. To accept that responsibility is to feel compelled to react somehow, to live up to the moment. But I've literally never done that. Never written to or called a congressman. Never spontaneously volunteered to help anyone affected by an appalling government policy like the travel ban. Would never participate in a rally or chant or hold a sign. I don't know why. Especially since I'm always glad to look at Instagram and see my friends doing it. Just this morning, I saw pictures of a whole bunch of people I know going down to Fifth Avenue in Manhattan on Monday night to greet Trump as he came into New York City and express their disgust. This wasn't far from my house, a subway ride, but I can tell you with certainty that even if I wasn't hacking up green slime and sweating profusely in bed, even if I wasn't a journalist who has to maintain some semblance of impartiality, I would never have gone. This morning, I saw a screenshot of someone saying on Twitter, if you wondered what you would have done during slavery, the Holocaust, or the civil rights movement, you're doing it now. That sounds dramatic, but I don't think you need to feel like the present moment is equivalent to the Holocaust to believe it's true. What if this is what I'd be doing? What do I do about that? Coming up in the show, I will spiel about Google, not the company that fired someone for writing an offensive memo about diversity, but rather the search engine. But first, I want to talk about police unions, those defensive, strident, and relentlessly belligerent organizations that come out of the woodwork every time someone's death at the hands of a police officer makes the news. I spoke to former Boston Police Department officer Tom Nolan, now a professor in criminology at Merrimack College in Massachusetts. Why are police unions the way they are? Why are they so reflexively against reform and so quick to accuse their critics of waging a quote-unquote war on cops? And what happens to police unions? They're standing in government their level of influence, now that we have a president who wants nothing more than to impress them. Tom Nolan is a former Boston police officer who is now a professor in criminology at Merrimack College in Massachusetts. Nolan joined the Boston police force in 1978 and spent almost 27 years there, working first as a patrolman and eventually making lieutenant. He has a lot of experience with police unions. He served as a district representative in the Boston Police Patrolmen Association, and later he became the vice president of the Superior Officers Union. Tom Nolan, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. How would you say the police union leadership in Boston uh, encouraged members to think about the public and their uh, relationship to the public? 
the administration of the department, just to back up for a minute, mm-hmm. um, embraces this, uh, this, you know, it's variously been described as community policing or a philosophy where you, you collaborate and you cooperate and you communicate with members of the community. Right. A pretty, like a pretty and, progressive view of, of policing, right? A, a, an idea of police officers as not warriors, but, but peacekeepers, right? Exactly. And for many officers, the message that they hear from their union is one that's decidedly at odds with the message that's being sent from the police leadership, the administration. And that is to see yourself as, as people who are, are the protectors of people in the community and not uh, necessarily that you are engaging in any kind of a, you know, use the metaphor of the war. Um, but I think that the unions often um, encourage and enculturate members to think that it's an us against them uh, scenario in the in the communities and in the streets, and that there are only good guys and bad guys, and that the good guys are people like us and people who support us, and anyone else is someone who is a bad guy. So that kind of a, it's a false dichotomy that is often given voice in police union halls, unfortunately. You think that us versus them attitude that, that it sounds like police union leaders encouraged in members expressed itself on the street in terms of how police officers did their jobs? For some officers, it may have an effect, but I think there are, you know, and, and again, depending on where you're, you're working. I mean, so a city like Boston has, you know, I, I noted that last year they only had, for example, um, eight internal affairs complaints alleging instances of excessive force, which is extremely low mm-hmm. for a department of 2,000 police officers. You know, when I was involved in internal investigations in the 90s, um, it, they would average probably in the, in the 400 range, and a significant portion of those 400 complaints would, in fact, be for excessive force. So the officers are getting the message that at least if, as it pertains to excessive force, and at least as it relates to, to this, a city like Boston and its police department, that excessive force is not going to be tolerated, despite, you know, the, the rah-rah go get them that they might hear from some of their union officials. Mm-hmm. I'd say most of the rank file officers are not governed by that in any way. Well, so then why are police unions like this? I mean, what is it about policing or labor organizing that incentivizes that kind of attitude that you've been describing, that kind of grandstanding and opposition to reform. What, what is the root of that? Is it just the structure of the police officers and the management, or is it something about policing itself? I think it's it's part of the, the culture of policing, and it's something that's given some traction by certain police union officials that um, that they feel that their members are not understood, not appreciated, um, not compensated sufficiently, not given sufficient benefits or considerations, and that they've seen that they've had some degree of success being vocal and visible and and strident in condemnation of what they perceive as, as unfair practices that relate to the uh, the labor environment. Um, for the large part, at least, and, I, and this isn't without exception, but police officers who are elected to constitutional officer positions in their unions don't get elected by, by striking any kind of a conciliatory tone 
uh, as pertains to police management and city administration. And these are highly sought after positions um, because most of the, if, at least in the larger police unions, the union officers don't perform regular street patrol. They just, they work full time for the union and they, many of them get a salary from the union in addition to their police salary. I did full disclosure when I was, you know, I didn't have to go to essentially go to work at the police station. I worked out of the union hall. Uh I think that it's just been the history of, uh, in some unions and and this doesn't apply across the board, but this kind of rhetoric you know, and we've seen it reported out in the media, you know, in, in, in New York City, for example, the police, uh, the uh, Patrolman's Benevolent Association there and its leadership um, has been critical of any and all mayors and most police commissioners and the public and, you know, anyone who they see as or perceive as being at odds with their interests and the interests of their membership. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Patrick Lynch is the head of the uh, Patrolman's Benevolent Association is the poster child of of belligerent police unions. He is the one who, uh, after the the ambush of of the two police officers in New York, you know, said that uh, the mayor had blood on his hands and I guess encouraged uh, police officers to stipulate that they didn't want the mayor coming to their funerals if they were ever to die in the line of fire. He's a real extremist. Rank and file police officers don't necessarily subscribe to that level of vitriol uh, or, or don't feel that level of vitriol. I'm trying to understand why, if all police officers don't think this way, why do they consistently elect these kinds of people? Well, I think uh, that at some level, the message from someone like a Patrick Lynch in New York City, to use an example, resonates with his members. And I think that they have a belief that. Uh, that this kind of, you know, do you want to characterize it as grandstanding or, but this kind of, you know, vehement and very strident criticism of, of anything that they, they think is, is against their interest, rank and file officers believe that that is going to be the most successful means to achieve their ends. And their ends are benefits um, and, you know, increases in salaries, increases in whatever other kinds of benefits, vacation time, sick time, um, conditions of work. They think that that kind of strident criticism of management is going to be successful at the bargaining table. Police union officials are are politicians, essentially, um, who happen to be cops. And this is their view of how to enact political behavior. Uh, on that topic, uh, one thing we haven't really talked about so far that I I think a lot of our listeners are are going to be most interested in is accountability and and what happens when a police officer does something that, you know, people broadly perceive as indefensible. It seems like over and over again, people losing their lives, you know, at the hands of police. Police unions are really the the most aggressive voices uh, defending folks who don't seem like they deserve to be defended. To what extent is accountability and sort of what happens to a police officer when he or she is accused of misconduct is driving the kind of rhetoric that we hear? The, the accountability and the enacting of any kind of disciplinary sanction rests with the appointing authority, with the department itself. And I think the role of the union is to advocate for its members, no matter the level of wrongdoing. And, and there are exceptions. And I, I'm thinking about the, uh, the shooting death of the Australian woman in Minneapolis a few weeks ago, where that police union, and, and one could draw the conclusion, 
that it's no coincidence that the police officer happened to be a Somali immigrant who shot this woman and killed her, that in that case, the police union, the silence was deafening. Mm -hmm. So they did not come out and stridently advocate for the interests of, of its member there. But more typically, to your point, most of the time, and I'll say all of the time, and with that ex exception in mind, police unions are expected to defend their members, no matter what level of, you know, I'm thinking of, of the indefensible, and we could go through case after case, but uh, then police officer Michael Slager in, in North Charleston, South Carolina, shooting in, in the Walter Scott in the back repeatedly six or seven times as he is running away from the officer and all captured on video and seeing the deception in the, in the dropping of the taser weapon next to Scott's lifeless body. I mean, that is, the, in, in our minds, indefensible. Yet someone has to speak on behalf of the indefensible. Someone has to speak on behalf of that police officer, and and that, for you know, fairly or unfairly, wisely or unwisely, falls to that officer's union officials. And the expectation is not just on the part of the officer, but on the part of all of his or her colleagues, that the union can always and will already be prepared to defend, as you've characterized it, and, and I've reiterated it, the indefensible. Um, we had the same often the same people who were continually involved in, you know, or had allegations of wrongdoing leveled against them. And publicly, we would vocally defend this officer. We would go to disciplinary hearings and we would fight the fight to the extent that we could overcome the, uh, in, in, you know, the um, allegations against the officer. We would fight tooth and nail to do so. And privately, we might call the officer aside and say, hey, knock it off. You know, we're spending way too much, you know, union resources expending on your defense. Mm -hmm. You really need to straighten out. Mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes, you know, those officers, they might not listen to the department, but they see in their union officials, you know, they see colleagues and they see if someone says to them enough is enough. Uh, and you're never we're never going to observe that. And that's never going to be talked about. But that frequently goes on behind the scenes with right. uh, with unions and particularly with people who, who repeatedly engage in wrongdoing. How do you think police unions and their members have been affected or encouraged or enabled by the arrival of the Trump administration? Police officers, and keep in mind, we're talking about a, a pretty big universe here. We have over 18,000 police agencies in the United States. We have over 800,000 police officers so we can't and won't, shouldn't paint them all with the same broad brush. I mean, they're not, uh, you know, a monolith, uh, although some may disagree with me on that. But my sense is that they've very much been emboldened and, and uh, validated by some of the rhetoric that uh, they've seen coming out of the White House, including statements made a few weeks ago about uh, don't be so nice to people when you're putting them in the police car and putting your hands on their heads or whatever that, however that was, um, that was articulated, basically use violence when you see fit, I think was the message that was, that was sent. And certainly the message that was received. My apprehension is that, that some of the officers who most need to hear the message that you should be mindful of civil rights and civil liberties and the provisions of the constitution and your role as as a protector of people, you know, to ensure their safety and not as a warrior. I'm afraid that the officers who most needed to hear 
that message or most need to understand that message are going to be most affected by what they heard from the president at the time. Most officers, and, and I, I think I was heartened somewhat by the, um, you know, almost unilateral, not so much condemnation of those remarks, but certainly most police administrations, certainly the progressive ones, distanced themselves from those remarks immediately because uh, they clearly indicated that the speaker of those words did not know what the hell he was talking about and doesn't know anything about the role of law enforcement in the United States. Tom Nolan. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And now the spiel. So Google has been in the news lately, and in the thousands upon thousands of articles that were written about the notorious diversity memo, the company was talked about as larger than life, an unfathomably powerful entity, a bellwether for what corporate America will tolerate or condemn. And rightly so. Google is a supergiant. Actually, no, to paraphrase White House Deputy Assistant Sebastian Gorka, it is a hypergiant, an undeniable, ubiquitous force in our society that has successfully insinuated itself into our lives in dozens of intimate ways. Email, navigation, translation, web browsing, movie times, streaming video, mobile phones, they do it all. But they do something else too. They run an internet search engine. It sounds so modest when you say it that way, but it's no small thing. Google.com is the world's most widely used portal to the web, a tool that, according to internetlivestats.com, is used to make 40,000 searches per second, 3.5 billion searches per day, 1.2 trillion searches per year, And that's trillion with a TR, which means it's a lot, even though I admit 1.2 does not sound like very much. Now, here's what I want to talk about today. For all its might as a multi-tentacled company, Google as a search engine kind of sucks. We don't notice it anymore or talk about it, like people who live in the Bay Area and act like it's warm there, even though it's actually cold. But it's undeniable when you try to use this thing to do any kind of research on something that's in the news. You type in your terms, you hit search, and pretty much all you get is a bunch of articles published in the past week or month or year, if you're lucky, stuff from the very recent past that completely ignores the vast majority of what's on the internet. First, let me give you an example of something Google is good for. A few minutes ago, I was trying to figure out who made that comment about how America was not a superpower anymore, but rather a hyperpower. I needed it for the joke that you heard at the top of the spiel. I vaguely remembered that someone made this comment. I'd seen it referenced on Slate or on Facebook or somewhere else but I didn't know who'd said it or where or when. So I googled superpower, hyperpower. And sure enough, there was a Washington Post article that referenced the quote and gave me all the info I needed to know. Sebastian Gorka. But so what happened then? I wanted to learn more about Gorka. Who is this mysterious man from Hungary whispering in Donald Trump's ear? Where did he come from? What did he spend his life doing before this most recent turn in the spotlight? I wanted to go deep on the guy, and I wanted Google to help me. So I typed in Sebastian Gorka. What did I see? I'll tell you. First, three news articles. One from four days ago, one from one day ago, one from four hours ago. After that, his Wikipedia page and his Twitter page. Then, an MSNBC article from one day ago, a Rolling Stone article from four days ago, a Washington Post story from four days ago, and another one from two days ago, a Think Progress post from August 10th, another one from July 24th. Something from The Independent from four hours ago. With the exception of Gorka's LinkedIn profile and his Facebook page, the oldest articles that came up in the first five pages of search results were all from 2017. And half of them, roughly, were from the past few days. Was this guy even alive before 2017? 
He had a book that came out last year, Defeating Jihad, The Winnable War, that pops up on page six. So I guess the answer is yes. But for the most part, you wouldn't know it from these search results. Page nine, all 2017. Same with page 10, with the exception of one Google Books link to a 2013 book by Gorka's wife, Catherine. Do not even get me started on page 11. It's all just a bunch of stuff from like five minutes ago. And a lot of it is just different versions of the same news stories repackaged and aggregated by different sources. It's so lame. Like, I understand that Gorka only became broadly relevant this year, but the whole point of a search engine that has access to the entire internet, no, the entire history of the internet, should be to surface some stuff that's hidden away in the thicket. And there is some stuff on Gorka in the thicket, by the way. When I restricted my search to material published prior to 2014, I found his 1996 wedding announcement in the New York Times. Also, a PDF of his 2007 PhD dissertation on the rise of the transcendental terrorist. Also, a poster for a 2010 event at the Princeton Club in New York City, in which Gorka spoke alongside Alan Dershowitz. Side note, that event was hosted by an organization called The Lawfare Project. What is The Lawfare Project, and what does that have to do with the widely read legal blog Lawfare? Nothing. I know this thanks to a post on Lawfare from 2013 by Benjamin Wittes, which Google turned up as the third result when I searched for The Lawfare Project in quotes. Shout out to Google for that. What else is in there? From 2011, a very interesting Wired article by Spencer Ackerman about Islamophobic training materials provided to the FBI counterterrorism agents, which mentions a talk that Gorka gave at the Bureau about the core texts of Salafi Jihad. Then, from 2006, there's an article from the Jewish Telegraph Agency about the revival of the Arpad flag in Hungary. The Arpad flag, as the article notes, is more than 800 years old, but had been used most recently by Hungary's Nazi-affiliated Aero Cross Party during World War II. Sebastian Gorka, who has been accused of having Nazi ties, is quoted in the article defending the use of the flag by modern Hungarians, saying the flag wavers are an easy target for critics because, quote, how do you prove you're not a fascist? Gorka went on to say in the article that just because the centuries-old flag was used as a fascist symbol for a few years doesn't mean people can't use it in a more innocent way in the present. This is, I think, a relevant point of view, given the recent controversies over Confederate memorials. Would have loved to see it in my original search results, Google. Look, Maybe this isn't the kind of stuff most people want to see when they search for Sebastian Gork on Google. I don't know. But to my mind, Google should be more than just a news digest that gives you the most recent and most readily available material on whatever you're interested in. Instead, it should be a comprehensive survey that reaches back in time and digs up information that would have otherwise been lost. Google has access to this stuff. It just doesn't show it to us unless we try extra hard. And maybe that's the real lesson here. Maybe I'm just a lazy guy who sucks at Googling. Surely, though, there's a balance to be struck. Fine. Give me Heavy's five fast facts on Sebastian Gorka on page one. But give me some less obvious stuff too. It shouldn't be the case that when I Google Elizabeth Moss interview, for example, all I get is coverage of her press tour for The Handmaid's Tale. You'd think she'd never been in anything else if you looked that up and only got through the first 10 pages of results. Google Sinead O'Connor, just to pick a random example, right now, and you'll get, as the first non-Wikipedia result, an article from four days ago. This is someone who's been famous for like 30 years. Someone who's been the subject of numerous in-depth magazine profiles. Why is a blog post from two hours ago about Russell Brand talking about her recent mental health struggles on the first page of results? One last example. Look up Google and gender. As you can probably guess by now, the results are overwhelmed by coverage of last week's controversy involving James Damore. But if you want historical context, if you want to learn about, say, the time in 2014 when Google released a dispiriting report on the gender and ethnic diversity of its workplace, or the controversy from 2011 about Google Plus only allowing its users to register as male or female, or the time in 2012 when CNN ran an article on Marissa Mayer, in which she was quoted as saying, I'm not a woman at Google, I'm a geek at Google. Well, you're going to have to work a lot harder. I get it. It's possible that I'm expecting too much of Google and not enough of myself. 
It's also possible that websites that publish 20 things a day have become just too good at getting Google's attention with SEO tricks that crowd out less aggressive sources. But if that's the case, Google needs to fight back. The past is long. Please, Google, let us see it. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson and Chris Berube with help from Daniel Schrader. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You can Google all these people, but good luck finding anything interesting. Mike Pesca, thanks for letting me sit in today. Boomperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.